I especially like the cornbread. Corn, yeah, the cornbread was yes, good, wasn't it? Yeah. Is that an Arizona? Is that an Arizona specialty? Do you I know? don't know if it's in Arizona. I don't. I, I don't see much corn. <laughs> as I look out the window here in Tucson, Arizona, I, I see many cactus, but not, but very little corn. Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. My guest co-host this week comes in the form of a regulated debut on the pod, Delaware's Steve Kenyon. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Glad to be here. So, Steve, we have known each other for about five years now since I took over as editor of Captive Review. Maybe a little longer than five years, Maybe but just about over. that time, yes. Yep. And uh, today we are sat at the Seeker International Conference. But if I remember correctly, the first time we met Steve was at uh, Captive Review's last ever Captive Live USA event in Chicago. It must have been about 2014. And you were on a panel with a couple of other captive regulators, as well as Superintendent Joe Torty of Rhode Island, which is a bit of a blast from the past. I was trying to think of his name earlier. Now, back then, Torty was very much seen as the primary captive naysayer within the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and you two used to have enjoy the odd debate, shall we say. Uh, what, what do you remember from those days and, and, and Mr. Torty? Well, first I have a tremendous amount of respect for former Super, Rhode Island Superintendent Joe Torty. I mean, I don't know if he was a captive naysayer. I, I would not characterize him in those terms. Sure. But certainly uh, Superintendent Torty had very, very strong views in respect to how certain types of captive insurance companies should be regulated. And it should be made clear to your listeners, Richard, that uh, Superintendent Torty was not against all captives. He was only concerned with certain types of captives that were formed by life insurance companies. Yeah. So the reason I mention that is because we're now seeing over the last few years, uh, plenty, um, or last 18 months, say, plenty of examples of states, really non-captive states, shall we say, getting quite heavily involved uh, in the captive market and, and posing more questions, perhaps. So times have moved on, and I'm pleased that, that you're with us uh, today, and there's been plenty of developments over the last 12 months. We'll come on to more positive news in a moment, but as a passionate captive advocate yourself, Steve, what issue most kept you up at night in 2018? That captives currently on a global scale are on a downturn. In other words, for many, many years, we have seen continuous captive growth. If your listeners can visualize it, the graph is continually moving up and up and up. But beginning in, you know, probably in 2016, we began to see a plateau, and in 2018, 2017, a downward trend in terms of fewer captives being formed and fewer captives existing in the world. Do we need to turn that round? Do you want to see that number? How important is it that, that captive numbers keep going up, or do we just want to see existing captives become more sophisticated? I think we should see existing captives become more sophisticated. You know, captive growth you know, it generally is viewed in good terms, but you know, captive growth must also be, be responsible growth as well. We simply cannot, as regulators, cannot license any captive that seeks to have a license, and I think everyone would agree with that. You know, some have said right now that with the challenges facing and the headwinds facing the industry that maybe this is good, some culling out of, of certain types of captives, and that may be, well be the case. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I am continuing continue to watch this trend. You know, in 2018, Delaware had 112 dissolutions of captives versus 46 new formations. Yeah. So that, that, is, that's not a, that is not a long-term sustainable path for us for, for growth. Yeah, of course. But Richard, we have a lot more to discuss in this episode. What else would you like to discuss? So our captive owner discussion this week is with Frederick Finman, head of group risk management at engineering multinational Sandvik. Frederick provided a Solm D2 update from Sweden, but was also joined by Spring Consulting's Karen Landry in discussing European captive owners' approaches to ensuring workers' compensation here in the United States. EY's Mikael Reibstein will feature in the second half of this episode discussing the key tax developments. 
in America's captive market over the past 18 months as well. But first, as we are at Seeker, it would only be right to hear from the association president, Dan Toll, on this year's conference and why he remains concerned with ongoings in Washington state. We even exceeded last year's uh, numbers. We're at 563 and counting. We have uh, 137 first-time attendees, which to me is extremely rewarding. It means we're expanding our reach. It means that we're getting more people interested and involved than we would seek it, but the captive industry that probably wasn't before. So we're very excited about that. At the same time, uh, we have 120 captive owners in attendance, which keeps our percentage right. well in that sort of 20 to 25 percent, which is which is outstanding. We are an association that was formed for the benefit of the captive owner, and it's great that we still have that that high level of involvement. And uh, just lastly, Dan, so one of the big topics of last year was the Microsoft Washington State Arizona captive um, mm-hmm. dispute was eventually settled between Cypress Insurance Company, the Microsoft captive and uh, the Washington State Insurance Commissioner. Is that an area you're still watching, and how did you kind of see that play out last year? Um, Absolutely. It's something we're very concerned about. We've had a very open dialogue with many of the stakeholders in Washington State. Um, We actually have an active group that has a call about once a month to keep track of what's going on and new developments. Uh, It's very concerning, because certainly uh, we think it's it's a bit of a bold stand for the insurance commissioner to to, uh, take this approach with captives. We are certainly hopeful it's isolated to Washington State and the companies that are headquartered there. But it's something we're watching very closely because this could have some very uh, adverse effects to captives uh, throughout the country. Steve, first, it'll be great to hear how 2018 was for Delaware. As you said, I think 18 new formations, 27 closures uh, during the year. Is that well, correct? Actually, it was 46 new formations in 20 in 2018. Okay, we'll, we'll come on. Well, exactly, <laughs> we're going to come on to that that exact issue on counting captives, and I'm looking forward to that debate with you. But um, can you give us a bit more information on on the formations that you saw in Delaware? It was a very positive year because in 2018 we implemented our new conditional licensing system. It's a speed to market approach wherein the captive applicant can obtain a license, a provisional license or a conditional license, more specifically, I should say, the same day as submitting the application. And uh, what's been the response to, to that uh, conditional license process? Of our 46 formations, for captive formations in 2018, 30 of those, Richard, were conditional licensees. And we're gonna, I want to talk to you a bit about conditional licenses as well a bit later on. But one area that you and I, and you touched on it already, one area that you and I would often clash or disagree, shall we say, when it came to counting captives was whether or not sales or series captives, which are popular in Delaware, should count as individual captives. My position was always that we would count the core as one captive, but not include the individual sales or series in the final figures. Series are a very popular type of captive in Delaware. I think you have over 500 active in Delaware yes, today? Yes, actually, yes, more than 500, correct. Um, so can you explain for our listeners, particularly outside of the United States, what a series captive is and why you believe they should count as standalone captives? Well, first, let me, let me address what a series captive is. It is a captive insurance company that holds a certificate of authority or a license issued by the Delaware Insurance Department. As a result, we consider it to be a captive insurance company because it holds its own specific certificate of authority to to conduct the business of insurance. From an organizational perspective in terms of business organization forms, a Delaware series is formed either under a limited liability company in Delaware, a limited partnership, or a statutory trust. And if you can visualize a corporate chart, Richard, wherein you may have the big box at the top, right? and then below it, subsidiary-type companies. While the big box would be the limited liability company in most cases, and then the multiple boxes below, for the visualization of the listeners, would be the individual series. Now granted, a series in and of itself cannot exist independently of another type of business organization form. For captive insurance, that's primarily limited liability companies. But again, as I said earlier, 
we license series individually so they hold their own certificate of authority. I think it is a very nuanced debate, and it's probably one, um, I'm not going to completely concede ground, but it is one which I'd like to continue to revisit because I think the nuances come from the differences between uh, what is known as, in other domiciles, protected cell companies and incorporated cell companies. Mm -hmm. Now, these are terms that were born out of Guernsey and have been used. There are other terms that are used for similar. In Bermuda, it's segregated account company. In Cayman, it's segregated portfolio company. And within Cayman's SPCs, they now have PICs, which are portfolio insurance companies. For me, the series captive is most similar or most comparable to the ICCs that you get in Guernsey, which is the incorporated cell company, because the incorporated cell company, like a series, the cell would be in that corporation chart in the same place as a series, but their advertisers more robust than a PCC structure because an ICC cell has is, a, is its own legal entity, which is what you're saying. So possibly, possibly we should be counting series captives and ICC cells as standalone captives. I would probably not do that for a PCC still today because a PCC cell does not have its own separate legal entity as I understand it and then also I think the series would also be similar to the portfolio insurance company that Cayman has do you follow no well l- l- let me explain and I think this is a very important distinction for your for your listeners cells are a product of the insurance codes or the insurance laws of individual jurisdictions I means that is how cells are created series are the product of the limited liability company laws and the other business organization laws of of the state of Delaware. As consequently, where a cell can only be organized to conduct insurance activities, a series can be an insurance company, but it can also be many other things. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons we have series in Delaware is I looked at the mutual fund industry. Let me ask your listeners to consider a mutual fund family, wherein there may be the small cap fund, the large cap fund, the real estate fund, and then maybe the bond fund. So you have four different funds within a fund family. Each one of those funds in Delaware can be its own individual series. Consequently, when I looked at that and decided that if it works for the mutual fund industry, which began using series in 1996, why can we not apply that same concept where the large cap fund is a series, its own individual series, the small cap fund is its own individual series, the bond fund is its own individual series, the real estate fund is its own individual series, and transfer that to captive insurance, which is what we've done. Series is a form of business organization in Delaware. So consequently, if a series is formed, it can be a series captive insurance company, but it can also be licensed as a pure captive insurance company. And when we speak of pure captives, we speak of group captives, when we speak of industrial insured captives, those are only merely licensing types allowed under the insurance code. So we take that licensing type and we attach it to a form of business organization allowed under Delaware law, which could be a limited liability company, partnership, corporation, a trust, or a series. So if we were today, I don't think the Global Captive Podcast has this authority uh, yet, but if we were today to uh, say series captives are standalone captives, then Delaware is the largest domicile in the United States by captive type, is it not? Probably not, not just in the United quite. States, but in the world. What would the total number be? Probably about 987. Yeah, it definitely would be, because I think Bermuda's around 700-something, Vermont's around 560. So congratulations, uh, Steve. Well, that's news. <laughs> we, we, we have broken new ground here for your listeners. But now is time to hear our first set-piece interview uh, of the episode. Joining me to primarily discuss European captive approaches to U.S. workers' compensation, but also the regulatory environment in Sweden and employee benefits de- developments in the United States, were Karen Landry of Spring Consulting Group and Frederick Finman, head of group risk management at Swedish Engineering multinational Sandvik. Frederick began by telling me why he finds visiting the U.S. captive market once a year so useful. 
I think uh, European, European captives are sort of lost in regulatory matters and are related to solvency too, which gives very little time for business development uh, currently. So the SICA conference is, uh, is a very valuable input to innovation. And I believe that uh, the US captive market is as well a lot uh, larger than European and a lot more diverse. So in those in, in that sense, it's very valuable to be yeah. here. Might give you some more ideas of thinking outside the box. Exactly, yeah, because you, you lose yourselves in, in, in the re- regulatory matters uh, currently. Frederick, you've been at Sandvik now for 18 months, and prior to that, you were with uh, Asa Bloy in Sweden. What is, uh, can you explain to us the, the captive structure at Sandvik and kind of what it's used for? I mean, the, the captive structure as such is, is fairly uh, similar. Most of the business is reinsurance of, of our fronting companies. Asa Bloy had a somewhat more diverse portfolio which also included the US workers comp. Uh, Sandvik's captive has a bit uh, slimmer portfolio, but we're looking on, on expanding that in the future as well. Domiciled in Sweden? Yes. Yeah, which is very common nowadays for, for Swedish captives. Exactly. I mean, both Sandvik and Asabloy had uh, their captives in, in, uh, in Switzerland before. But, uh, I mean, due to the tracks tax transparency currently and, and, and for operational reasons, most Swedish multinationals actually... Yeah, migrated those to back to Sweden. So what, one area that makes the US market challenging or, or unique for European captive owners with American risk is often the, the workers' compensation landscape, which you, t- you touched on. Um, so from, with that experience, looking back now, how much of it was a surprise when you first had to deal with U- US workers' comp and how, is it, how does it differ from the kind of the European side? Quite surprising, actually. I mean, workers' comp in Europe is, is very different in terms of structure. And like in Sweden, it's, it's a government-sponsored program. We talked about disability and workers' comp earlier uh, today, and, and both those programs are, are government-sponsored. So as an employer, you, you don't, I mean, you pay your corporate tax and the employees pay their uh, income tax, and that covers sort of the, the two programs. So, so as an em- em- employer, you don't have to actually care about those. So coming to, U- to the U.S., it was, uh, I mean, really challenging to discuss with our, our fronting companies here and also looking at predicting the profitability in the captive as well. So it required a lot of, you know, meetings with, with knowledgeable people here in the U.S. to get an understanding of that. Is it, is it not a problem to reinsure that risk? If it's written by a U.S. fronting company, can you reinsure it to a, to a European captive? Obviously, it's, it's different from ERISA, Department of Labor benefits, which need to be in a, in a U.S. captive, right? So workers' comp doesn't have to stay in, in, in America. So most of the companies that uh, put workers' comp programs in their captive, a lot of them take um, a self-insured retention um, and formalize that into a premium as opposed to uh, the excess workers' comp risk. So that can go into a captive wherever it may be. And is it an area on the workers' comp issue, uh, Karen, is it an area, as, as, as Frederick mentioned, that Europeans fully understand or do they tend to need a bit of hand-holding in, through that process? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of them, just because it's so different in the U.S., workers' comp includes the income replacement plus the, the health insurance piece. Even the disability is different. Uh, you know, it doesn't include health insurance. So understanding the occupational and non-occupational programs, I, I think that they do need a little bit of an overview and an explanation. 
um, but once they have it, they're good to go. And is there a reason why, I mean, U.S. workers' comp is, is a common line through U.S.-owned captives, isn't it? Uh, yes. Wh- wh- why is it that U.S. workers' comp is suitable for, for a captive program? It's suitable because uh, companies want to formalize the process and um, the risks that they take rather than leaving it on their financial statements. So it allows them to track it separately and independently. And that's why a lot of people put workers' comp into their captive, at least the deductible buyback portion of a large deductible plan. I mean, it's up to them then in terms of how much they then pass on to their reinsurance markets, presumably. And that might differ it, it between is. It's between up to them companies. to do that. But usually if they're buying, if they're taking a large deductible, they already have uh, the remaining part of the premium in the commercial markets. Yep. So they, it, usually they just take the risk that they feel comfortable with and put that in the captive. And so, Frederick, there's, there's one topic I, I can't let you leave uh, without, without addressing for us, and you and I have discussed this down the years. On Solvency 2, how are the Swedish captive community getting on with the, the local regulator at the moment? I know that there have been some growing pains, not just in Sweden, but in all, in all jurisdictions on Solvency 2, and how, and if at all, they're applying any uh, proportionality uh, to captives. Are there any signs that they, the Swedish regulator is becoming more sympathetic towards captives and applying the principle of proportionality? Quite the opposite, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, the relationship is, is, is not really, I mean, it's, it's fruitful, but I mean, it could be, could be a lot better. Supervision is being more and more detailed, and there is no adaption to size at all. So the, 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 the reporting to the financial supervisory authorities is drawing a lot of resources. Uh, um, and it does not really provide, you know, any be- benefit for society as, as very few captives write third-party business. But uh, I mean, the, the only ones that actually win on this are the consultants now. I mean, uh, actuaries, actuarial oh, business in Sweden is soaring. I know. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit disappointing, uh, actually. Right, but the regulator, I, I believe that they are at least open to discussing it with you, whether or not it. But it might not actually turn into any. They, I mean, in, the, in that sense, I mean, the Swedish FSA is, is is good in that sense. You can do, you can discuss with them. But uh, but it seems that a lot of the requirements requirements coming from the European Union are not challenged enough by them. So just before Christmas, three weeks, weeks before Christmas, all captives in Sweden received a huge survey that needed to be filled in on on you know, central functions and and. Uh, it's it's really cumbersome all these both the qualitative and quantitative uh, reporting to uh, to the FSA. And and Karen, you've always been uh, pretty plugged into the Department of Labor here in the United States, which is which has the authority responsible for approving ERISA requests uh, put in from captives if they want to start writing certain employee benefits in in the United States. Not a whole load of activities been going on at the DOL from what I can see. Uh, recently. Is there, is there a reason for that and any sign of, of more DOL approvals in the pipeline? So uh, I think employers try to focus on the low-hanging fruit first and the low-hanging fruit are things that don't require DOL approval because they're simpler. Things like voluntary benefits, deferred compensation, medical stop-loss, and there's a lot of acti- activity going on in that realm. In terms of uh, applications in the DOL, we have one application in the Department of Labor currently. Uh, what slowed down is the expedited process, which takes 45 days to get tentative authorization. And the reason that that's occurred is they've wanted to look at how they treat benefit enhancements. Uh, they have concluded their investigative process. I'm meeting with them later this month. I expect the expedited process to come back online. That's good um, news. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'll have to take a little bit of a wait and see attitude, but they, they do have the individual process that you can go through. Um, that process takes longer um, than the expedited process. There's no timeline on it. Um, so, you know, I expect it to come back online shortly, though. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. Welcome back to part two, where I am joined by Steve Kinion, the director of the Bureau of Captive and Financial Insurance Products at the Delaware Insurance Department. One area that I have spoken about regularly and I know is a topic you will find interesting, Steve, is comparing uh, captive regulatory attitudes across the world, uh, particularly the two largest captive regions of the United States and Europe. Steve, you were in Luxembourg for the European Captive Forum in November last year. How do you view the differences between uh, regulatory approaches? My view in the, on the differences is primarily based on the laws. So as you know, in the United States, the regulatory system is a state-based approach in which each individual state has its own insur- insurance laws or insurance codes, that should be more specific, and applies, and applies those. We don't have a broader system like Solvency II, which applies it within the European Union. And of course, that does has its advantages and disadvantages. In terms of captive insurance companies, because of our state-based systems, captive insurance insurers in the United States cannot passport as they can within Europe. Yeah, and obviously the Solvency II is a very robust and some would say very onerous uh, regime for captives to be regulated under. They're treated almost the same as uh, commercial insurers. And for me, that's what stunts the growth of the European market. Whereas in the United States, you have a very competitive domicile market you know you don't really have a domicile market in Europe but there's a competitiveness between Delaware Vermont Tennessee Hawaii South Carolina North Carolina Texas and we could go on for about another 30 others how do you think that impacts the the captive market here in the United States well I think it impacts the captive market in this form I mean because it is a competitive environment each state is seeking to develop the best captive insurance laws that they can it can develop for example as I mentioned a moment ago in terms of conditional licensing well develop Delaware developed that. One of the reasons Delaware developed that is because when Commissioner Navarro entered office in January of 2017, he said, we need to, we need to have, in Delaware, we need to have a better speed-to-market system. And he charged the Captive Bureau with developing a speed-to-market system, such as conditional licensing, but also maintaining regulatory standards and safeguards. It is a great illustration of how different the uh, U.S. captive domiciles approach regulation uh, compared to the European Union uh, jurisdictions particularly. You know, it's a very business-friendly approach to the captive market. I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I went and tried to explain that or you tried to explain that to the Luxembourg regulator or the Dublin regulator or even the Guernsey regulator who are more open for business and more traditional offshore jurisdiction, I think they would look at horror at the idea of, of granting a provisional license so quickly. They may. They may. I mean, I've never approached those specific regulators, but I do speak with regulators from Germany, France, yep. Ireland, the United Kingdom. You know, Delaware is a very consistent and a very frequent participant in 
international supervisory colleges involving insurance regulators from across the globe. How do you put those safeguards in place that you mentioned? How do you ensure that it's still a robust regulatory process when you can be given a license so quickly? Only a select number of captive insurance managers may avail themselves and their clients of the privilege of applying for a conditional license. Second, it requires captive owner involvement, Richard. I say again, the captive owner must sign a statement of compliance stating that the application being submitted for a conditional license meets the requirements, high standards of Delaware's regulatory laws. That's very important because in Delaware, we want the captive owner to be involved with their insurance company. But also in terms of going back to what I said about the the select number of captive managers. We've applied what's known as the KYC or Know Your Customer Rules. We've identified these captive management firms who have been dealing with Delaware, have been presenting captives to Delaware for a number of years. We know their, how they operate. We've examined their operations more than once, and we feel satisfied that they will continue to operate very effectively and in compliance with the law. And you trust them? There's a, there's a relationship already in place? Of course. I mean, I think you know, insurance, like any other business, is one of relationships. Just lastly, what other changes uh, in Delaware have been made to the CAPTA statute and, and regulation in recent times? Well, this year, here we are on March 12th of 2019. Had it been March 12th of 2017, by now, captive annual statements, financial annual statements, as well as premium tax payments in in Delaware would have already been paid because the statute at that point in time said March 1. We extended that deadline, moving it from March 1 to April 15th in collaboration with the Delaware Captive Insurance Association. So now the law in Delaware is that the annual financial statement or the annual financial report submitted to the regulators, as well as the premium tax payment paid to the state of Delaware, is due on April 15th. This gives the captive insurance industry an additional six weeks to prepare financial statements. So to discuss some of the major tax developments from 2018, I invited EY's Mikhail Reibstein to sit down with me. Considering EY's global approach to their captive practice, something I view as relatively unique, I began by asking him how often he is in contact with his colleagues in other parts of the world. I think one of the most unique things that allows us to be so well connected is that we all sit within our global financial services insurance sector, at least predominantly most of us. And as we operate as one global organization across Uh, boundaries, we work together and are connected not only on captives but on other clients and internal firm matters as well, making overall connectivity easier, much easier to to work with and specifically really depends on deals. Europe probably a little more right now, especially with OECD and Brexit. Asia Pacific ramping up but still probably not as much considering the amount of deals are going on. And in LATAM, really depends on a client. Some inbound, some outbound. So we stay very connected to our LATAM tag, tax and insurance desk in, in New York and um, take it one captive at a time. Great. So on, on tax issues, uh, there's quite a few topics coming out of the United States from 2018, particularly that will interest our listeners. But let's start with President Trump's tax reform package that took effect from the beginning of 2018. The corporation tax dropping from 35% to 21% was seen as a potential threat or challenge to captives because owners might see less benefit on tax deducting premiums going into their captive. How did this actually play out through 2018 and has it influenced uh, feasibility or rationalization projects? Well, the drop in the tax rate definitely made people think um, a little more thoroughly through how they want to approach their captive project, whether it's a new captive that they want to set up or whether it's a, an existing captive that they want to put some enhanced risk in. Overall, we didn't really see a drop in feasibility or rationalization studies. What, what we've seen just shows that the clients are a lot more thorough with their planning 
before they approach it. But overall, the steam is still there and clients are very interested, just as, as they were before the tax rate um, reduction kicked in. So the other part of the, ta- the Trump tax reform that made headlines in the capital sector was the beat tax. Uh, we could talk about it all day, but can you explain what the beat is and how it might impact capital structures? Oh, we can definitely talk about it for a long time <laughs> and all the technical aspects of it. But in a nutshell, base erosion and anti-abuse tax, or beat, uh, really looks after some of the base erosion that US-based companies did in order to shift certain uh, funds and payments offshore. Currently, if the company qualifies or um, falls into the beat uh, threshold, the company will have to recompute its tax. In terms of impact on captives, the companies had to go back and relook how their captives operate, what types of payments they have, especially for companies that have global risk, and reassess what makes more sense. Some of the challenges may be solved with certain planning. Some other challenges need a little little further in-depth review. But overall, um, so far we've seen a lot of interesting things that come out of the planning side, and we're looking forward to more. So we've gone the whole two episodes and 20 minutes, I think, without mentioning the 831B tax election, but but here we are. For listeners outside the U.S., 831B is a section of the IRS code that allows an insurance company writing less than $2.3 million in annual premium to choose to only be taxed on its investment income. These vehicles have proved immensely popular and are legitimately used for risk management and and insurance procurement purposes for large swathes of America's middle market. However, I think it is fair to say that the tax election has been abused by some promoters and captive owners who have seen it fit to utilize it as a wealth transfer or estate planning tactic. Mike, I know you generally deal with larger captive clients at EY, but do you have customers, uh, but you do have customers in this area, I believe, and, and do get some visibility of the issues surrounding 831B. After all the scrutiny from the IRS and the Abrahami US tax court case, how do you assess the health of the 831B space? Well, um, I believe it's still a very viable tool for the companies of the appropriate size when structured appropriately. And as uh, court cases shown, there are some um, companies that probably needed to re-review their planning uh, with respect to 831B. Nonetheless, when courts look at the 831B cases now, they're taking a very careful path, correlating them to the cases that they found for the taxpayer to make sure that facts align. And they really paving the path forward for both the owners and the service providers to truly see what the intent of the government is when they look at these cases. So for me, the, the biggest story from 2018 what, uh, concerning tax in the United States was the Microsoft case. So to remind listeners, the, this concerns Cypress Insurance Company, an Arizona captive owned by Microsoft, which is a, which, and Microsoft is a Washington State headquartered company. Washington State's Insurance Commissioner, Mike Creedler, Uh, took exception to the risk being written in his state by the captive over a period of 10 years and served it with a cease and desist order. Cyprus did begin a defense of its captive operation, but ultimately settled with Cradler, paying almost $574,000 in unpaid premium taxes and $303,000 in interest and penalties, amounting to considerably less than the $1.4 million originally demanded by Washington State. Cyprus has, however, according to Washington, now redesigned its structure to comply with state law by placing its insurance through a state-licensed surplus lines broker. Mike, how have you seen your clients react to those developments in Washington State over the past 18 months? And is there concern that such aggressive state action could spread or, is it, or do you think it's an isolated case? Well, they were definitely on the edge of their seats during the middle of it because the entire market was. Uh, and everyone was watching very patiently to see what comes out. Uh, once settlement was announced, there were questions that popped up whether other states would follow suit. So far, we haven't seen anything develop into anything more than, than a rumor, but um, at this point, Washington 
uh, has offered some voluntary disclosures, and we're watching those. Uh, the companies are allowed to approach state under the Washington order and uh, settle with the state potentially. Once that um, timeline expires, the state will reserve the right to go back potentially to uh, all the years in existence and uh, assess tax, but whether that will happen or not and whether anything will change about Washington policy is yet to be seen. Well, Steve, thank you for joining me on episode three of the Global Captive podcast. How did you find being on this one? I found it very enjoyable. I found it also very informative. And I will say thank you to your other guests. Well, thank you, Steve. And thank you to all of my guests this week. Uh, Karen, Frederick, Dan, Mikhail, and of course, yourself, Steve. Do join us in episode four to be released on Monday, 15th of April. See you next time, Captives.